Good morning, and welcome to Three Moves Ahead, the podcast about strategy games of all sorts. I'm your host, Bruce Garrick, and today I have famous designer Mark Herman. Mark, welcome to the show, or welcome back, I guess. Yeah, let's, uh, we've had several n- nice conversations. Well, hopefully we'll get to the same room one day and we'll play a game. That's right, exactly. So um, I wanted to talk to you because I wanted to talk about Pacific War strategic games of World War II, and you've designed two of them. Um, and we were just talking about uh, another one. I'm going to do, actually, I think a series on these things, and we were talking about um, Pearl Harbor. That's a game by John Prytos from back in, I think it's like 79 or something like that. It, it's actually... Um... In essence, it's the companion game to Third Reich, actually. Uh, I think that's what he originally intended. And for some reason, I, I don't remember that, you know, you'd have to ask John why it didn't get uh, published by Avalon Hill. But uh, I think GDW did it. Uh, very yes, cool. they did. Yeah. And it, it's, a, it's a really good game. In fact, it's one of the few that I play regularly that, uh, that you know, is an Empire of the Sun, actually. So <laughs> it, it's really uh, quite a good game. Uh, and I, it's, one, it's also one of the few that feels like a strategic game to me. Okay. Um, now, they did do, uh, there's, you have Empire of the Sun, but there's Empire of the Rising Sun, which is an Avalon Hill game from, I think it was the mid-90s, maybe. Um, and that feels, that is sort of, I think, the companion to Third Reich, but it wasn't designed by John Prados. No, I think, well, I... I so there, there's um, look again. This I could have this incorrect, but you know you got Third Reich, and then there was Advanced Third Reich, and I think yes that that Pacific game is more in the milieu of the Advanced Third Reich uh, path that was taken, and it was not a direct you know it, in other words Prados's uh, you know John uh, did uh, Pearl Harbor as mm-hmm. like the equivalent of his original Third Reich game. Then they did Advanced Third Reich. And the game moved away. Actually, I think that the subsequent advanced Third Reichs and, and whatever actually are not. I, I don't. I don't dislike them as games, but they started becoming more um, tactical. Yeah. John had a true. You know, Third Reich is truly a strategic game. It sure where you is, have yes. Fronts that are on and fronts that are off, and a very big picture. And there was sort of this need to micromanage that became in, that's crept in through the advanced Third Reich. Yep. you know lineage and i think that the uh the game you're mentioning uh the uh, the rising sun one mm-hmm. uh is in that milieu again where it's more this tactical feel and I, I think that's an interesting conversation around what i think is a strategic game versus not a strategic game even though it's a one map game yeah well that's this it's going to be an interesting uh thing i think we can bring that up because you know we're talking about strategic pacific war games and i think that uh everybody whether they play board games or not uh, would agree that the the war in Europe and the war in the Pacific were fundamentally different from an operational standpoint, right? The the, the tempo of, of operations was different. The logistic considerations, which I think are, are a huge driver of how that played out, were different. Obviously, you can't just march troops across the water. You have to take them from point to point. So it's really a point-to-point combat uh, sort of system that, that ends up happening and not a there are no front lines really the front line is sort of drawn through you know this empty water it doesn't really make much difference you have very mobile forces so they're very different um they're very different uh campaigns and i think that designers have a little bit of difficulty making a making an interesting game out of it i think that that's why maybe there aren't so many strategic pacific war games where there are you know Gosh, I, I we could probably just sit here for the whole hour and just name strategic uh, European games. Um, 
what what is the what is for you the biggest difficulty when you you you've you've now done two real act you know uh bona fide pacific strategy pacific war strategy uh, strategic war games um you did uh, pacific war which was in um i think it was published 1987 i'm going to say same i want to say, I wanna say 85 but 85, you okay. could be right it's been okay. a while i could be wrong too um so uh you did that one. That was Victory Games. Uh, that was a a very, I feel a very Victory Games game. Uh, it was. Very, <laughs> it, yeah, I think that's a good way to put yeah. it. It had a lot of things going on, and it really tried to um, to depict the Pacific War with as much attention to the detail of the things that sort of make a good uh, make a good story. In the sense of that, the battles—you don't want to lose that kind of, uh, you know, the, the Battle of the Coral Sea. I mean, you you did it so that you could play the Battle of the Coral Sea and have a reasonable Battle of the Coral Sea. Yeah, you could also have the entire Pacific War, and that I think is a is a is a way that that um, Victory Games never really want. Victory Games was very much, I think, uh, as it grew out of the out of the old SPI. Um, it it really wanted you to do things. I, that's that's the way I think. That's the way I think of Victory Games, and you then um, designed a game in two thousand. When that was two thousand five. Yeah, two thousand five. Okay. So the first edition of Empire of the Sun came out in two thousand five, and that's a very GMT game. Uh, I think in the sense that you sort of I feel shaved a lot of things off or or t- basically took them and said look we're going to make a we're, we're going to we're going to take all these little fiddly things that you know how you know how many uh, uh I'm going to you know moving these aircraft uh or these transports from Rabaul to Port Moresby we, we don't need to we don't need to show every hex that they're going through uh you know at every single second we want to sort of have the gestalt of these operations and by doing that we can actually People can play a Pacific War strategy game and complete it, unlike Pacific War, where I, I had a very hard time ever finishing a game of Pacific War, except for the operational scenarios. Um, so there, I think you have two different design philosophies in those games. Now, now, tell me, let's start with Pacific War because I think it's I think that's the game that that uh, more gamers are not going to really be familiar with. Um, how did that How did that whole thing get going why why did you decide to do a, a a game called Pacific War back then well let me if I could just preface my remarks first by a, a quick um, definitional thing at least in my own mind even then um, a strategic level game is a game that uh, and again it's it's not a matter of scale in, in other words it's not the fact that you can get it on one map or two maps or you know like the old war in the pacific you know was it eight or nine or eleven sure, maps? Yeah. i can't remember uh-huh. right it, it's not the number of maps it's the it's what are the level of decisions that you as the player are making is what determines the level to me and sure, so absolutely. going to your question specifically pacific war is actually in my mind not a strategic Pacific War game. It's actually an operational Pacific War game that that's that scales up to fighting the whole war at the operational level. Okay, fair enough. And so 
the game, when I did Pacific War, it's really, a, and that's why when people say that Pacific War is a monster game, mm-hmm. I would agree on the concept that it has, you know, was it like 2,200 pieces or something yeah. like that? It's got mm-hmm. a lot of counter sheets. Right. Uh, yes. And I, 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 it took me, it took me four of the old flat box, you know, the old SPI tray, yeah. flat box trays to mm-hmm. hold all the pieces. And I, yeah. eat, and I don't, and there's still, still some in bags. Yeah. I mean, it's not a lot of pieces. Right. And, and the goal there was to allow you to fight the campaigns. In other words, the game was actually designed around all of the campaigns in the South Pacific around Guadalcanal and, you know, the whole cartwheel and all of the operations in the South Pacific was actually the core of the game. Mm-hmm. And it was what was played. And so when you actually play Pacific War, uh, you know, the way that it is an operational game, it's probably you've probably only got about 40 or 50 pieces engaged at any given time, which is not a monster game in my my you know in my mind. Now, if you want to you know sit down and and I did play the strategic level scenario twice. Okay. Uh, when I was designing it, and it, yeah. it it's a long time and it sure is. My uh, my now thirty almost you know thirty two and a half year old daughter was mm-hmm. only like two at the time. Okay. And she sat on my lap during most of that time because she you know you're daddy's girl and all that. Right, and I, she actually has uh, a uh, she has credits as for project oversight. Uh, <laughs> okay, but uh, but the point is, is that the strategic level scenario layers in, you know, the uh, the strategic submarine campaign and mm-hmm. the strategic bombing, but that was layered on around a operational core. And what I would say, what makes a game an operational core in a Pacific War game, is the what I call the you know the the um, you know, the bowing toward the carrier battle. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. everybody talks about the Pacific, and, and what is the first thing that comes in your mind? It's Midway or Carl Sea mm-hmm. or whatever. And what most people don't realize is there were only six, you can maybe argue, seven carrier battles during the entire war, and four of them mm-hmm. all took place in 1942. Right, at Guadalcanal. Well, yeah, around right it. around the Guadalcanal, exactly. Right. You know, you've got Easton Solomons, and you've got um, Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz, and, and Battle of Guadalcanal, and, Coral and, and sea, so... Yeah. So that's where the core of the carrier mystique comes, and it's actually what Pacific War is based around. When a strategic level game, you know, Nimitz or MacArthur were never um, involved in a carrier battle. They mm-hmm. sat in the headquarters, and although MacArthur did go to the front much more than Nimitz did, although Nimitz got around, you know, in his own way to the front, he mm-hmm. got to Guadalcanal himself. They were surprised when he got off a plane in <laughs> Guadalcanal, and that's a, that was a real hellhole. <laughs> um, but the point is, is that those decisions are are strategic level decisions. You know, how am I getting from here to force Japan to surrender? How, right. And so, to me, Empire of the Sun is a strategic level game because. So when you said, you know, when I it became a GMT style game, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure. I I mean, certainly the look and feel of it. But what mm-hmm. I would say is that Empire of the Sun is a strategic level Pacific game because. It is choose not looking at the carrier battle. The carrier battle is carriers are enormously important. I know you've played Empire of the Sun, and it's enormously you can't get anywhere without carriers, and you do have you know carriers involved in battles, but you don't do the wave of airplanes and the anti aircraft fire. Right. Uh, one game that I particularly like, uh, which at some level is you ever play East Wind Rain by uh, Mark Markham? Yes, I yeah. yes. Very cool game. Uh, I like it a, a great deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in that game, which feels a lot more, is more in the tradition of 
you know, what I call old school. At, at one level, you're doing the economic, you know, building of units in the United States. Mm -hmm. And at the and, and it, it scales all the way down to you're actually positioning ships in a task force to handle anti-aircraft fire right. during an attack. Mm -hmm. That is that level of that that sort of telescoping scale mm -hmm. is very enjoyable at one level. But it's it's not a strategic level game when you're dealing with anti-aircraft fire. I mean, it's just it, it's a tactical detail. And so. It's a game that plays at all. It's, it's a, I what I call a telescoping design. So it is okay. at one level a strategic level uh, Pacific War game, mm -hmm. but it's telescoping down to some very very tactical um, decisions, and and it also goes back to another thing that I find interesting in Pacific War games, which I now I've moved away from, and you know the reprint of Pacific War has moved away from, is the enormous detail on the, the ships, like, you know, everybody, you know, oh, does it have all the ships? And, mm -hmm. you know, you know, did you did you rate that a five and not a four? And right. oh, that's screwed up because you made it a four. You don't know anything about, you know, I get all these kind of you know letters about the ratings of, 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 of ships and all that. And you have the, you know, the eighth Marine, you know, uh, you know, uh, water purification unit <laughs> on wake and all this kind of stuff. Right. But then they do air points. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I got. Eight air points or twelve right. air points, and to me, um, the air units, which is really what dominates the Pacific War, mm -hmm. you know. So, I, to me, it's not real. You know, it's not a good order of battle. Unless I had the most realistic order of battle, but I have air points. I go, right. are you really kidding me? Mm -hmm. what, what happened to the Seventh Air Force and the Thirteenth Air Force mm -hmm. and the Fifth Air Force and yeah. you know the Twenty Third Air Flotilla? You know, those were the the actual centerpieces of how that war got fought, and that there are only air points in all these other games. So that's another area where I think that, you know, there's been sort of a – so when you look at Pacific games and you say, that, you know, strategic levels Pacific games, I actually think there's very few. There's a lot of operational games that play out on one map that um, give you sort of a feel of the whole war or the whole Pacific, yet at the end of the day, they're really not um, – they're really operational games that are that are just sort of broadening out to grab the whole thing. I mean, that's Got how it. I look at it. How about um, have you played um, Fire in the Sky? Yes, I have. Yes. How would you how would you classify that? Because that re that really I yeah. feel I, it uh, is, that is that is uh, I think that is a strategic level game. Absolutely, because uh, you know they've they've really uh, it, it uh, it's a game that almost plays itself. I mean, I, I don't find and it's a great solitaire game because mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the Japanese decisions are, and of course it was done by a Japanese designer. So I think what it it has a. I, I find it interesting because it reflects a perspective that's not not a U.S. perspective. Mm -hmm. And so when I play that game, I feel as a Japanese that there's a sort of inevitability of my my demise, and then I'm sort of experiencing mm -hmm. that, which may be, you know, how that designer uh, looked at it. Right. Uh, but you do have oil points, which you know, sure. all games have logistics, so they focus very much on the oil. Uh, but there was a lot of other things going on. But re regardless. You know the scale of it, uh, how it plays out. It's really, you know, the, the it's got a very um, sparse order of battle for yes. the ground units. You know, you've got ground units. I don't think they give them rate. You know, they give them a designation. But then once you do that, you realize how many are not in the game, right? So mm -hmm. it's it's really more, you know, hunks of ma of land units that have some kind of designation. Right. You've got air points again. Yeah. Uh, and you've got, uh, you know, but then, of course, you've got the detail in the ships and the beautiful counters and all that, but very few hexes. So strategically, there's not um, – it's at a high level. So, yeah, I wouldn't although, call that. Although you're, you, you are 
putting ships in task forces and well, counting that's, their... again, that there's this sort of again this nod towards the carrier battle, right? Which I find so I find that to be very out of place with a strategic game to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, I think that's really where I, I draw the line on the definition is that if you're dealing with a carrier battle in its, you know, in, in any level of detail, then in fact, it's you, you've sort of introduced this telescoping mechanism again. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's not a strategic game, but you, you're telescoping down to this thing right. that didn't happen very often. So I, I find that games like that tend to look at everything as a carrier battle when in fact that was not what the war was about. It was mm-hmm. a battle. It was a battle for outposts and air bases to move air power, land-based air power forward. Right. Uh, Carrier, by the way, could only sustain operations for a few days uh, Mm -hmm. before it just wore itself out. It didn't, you know, ammunition and the pilots and all that, because, you know, it just didn't have, and even in today's world, that's true, by the way, also. It's very hard for a carrier to sustain operations, much, even modern ones, uh, for much more than like a week. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then they got to pull them back and, you know, they got to get the yellow gear fixed and, you know, plane maintenance has to be done. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so carriers in a strategic level game are really just sort of, you know, pinprick moments that have a lot of impact. But then they're move, they, then they move on. Okay. And it's really about the sustained operations of the air. You know, the land based airplane campaign was a much bigger part of the Pacific War, uh, which, of course, is well covered in a lot of books. But a lot of people focus on the carrier battles and not on the war. And what was really going on. Right. Well, <clears throat> so that that brings me to the to a question um, of what level because there's always going to be a level of abstraction or or I, I should sorry, abstraction's the wrong word. A level of compromise. Because if you really say that you are uh, that you are Nimitz or MacArthur, then you're really then all you would say is, okay, you know, well, um, we need to uh, go through the Philippines. And then you would just say, okay, we're going through the Philippines. And then you, then the game would sort of automatically, uh, I mean, cause you, all that stuff is delegated, right? I mean, you, you no, no, I think it's a little, I think it's a little bit more detailed than that. I mean, you're, you're, <clears throat> I mean, so, so again, I'm very big on, um, story arc and narrative in, in my games. And, uh-huh. <clears throat> And again, that's something I've evolved to. I didn't start there back when I did Pacific War in 1985. I was trying to, you know, and remember, these are also entertainment. You know, right. you want there to be a an interesting um, game experience. You want to, but you want to focus. I mean, you don't want to have everything in the kitchen sink in there because otherwise it is, in fact, a monster game. And, you know, the, the 12 guys who play it will love it, but that's that'll about where it'll go. Right. Uh, so... Nimitz, and it really, when you're at that level, it's not just I'm going to the Philippines, mm-hmm. but it's the it's the intricacies of picking the spots that have you know the the process of how am I going to get there? Mm-hmm. What are the resources that I can pull together to get there? What are the mm-hmm. logistics that I have to get there? Okay, and that is really what, and that's what Empire of Sun is focused on. You know, the cards um, are truly focused on. Uh, you know the log- they, that's how I handle logistics. You know you have to have logistics, and and I'm not a big fan of you know counting and adding um, stuff up. I find that that can be rather tedious, mm-hmm. and so you know I'm always trying to find ways in which I can you know control the tempo of the war with logistics as it was historically, mm-hmm. yet not give you a whole lot of you know micromanagement. Now there are some games where people relish that if you think about the um, very successful ocs series yes um 
which I enjoy playing on occasion, uh, you know, you're literally taking trucks and picking up uh, bullets and beans and moving them to the front lines mm-hmm. and fuel. And, you know, you have depots and, you know, you've got this whole infrastructure thing that's going on that is interesting, but it's, you know, it's a lot of work. And you spend most of the game, you spend most of your game just, um, you know, doing that. And that's that's a certain kind of experience. I, I'm more interested in, you know, what's the big picture? What's the political military thing that's going on? And that's and I like, war, you know, I like looking at conflicts at that level. Uh, right. At least that's what I've evolved to. Not to okay. say I don't like other other things. So so why why design why design victory? Uh, sorry, why design why design Pacific War as a uh, as a game that has day night cycles? I mean, what what? Oh, it was, again, I go back to it was uh, it was an operational level game, and at an operational level game, one, one of the big decisions, you know, when you're doing it that at the operations level. Mm-hmm. Um, the timing of day and night um, had a significant effect on air and naval operations. You know, the mm-hmm. reason that you had, um, you know, most of the surface operations that are, you know, the famous Savo, Iron Bottom, Sand, and all that occurred mm-hmm. was a function of the geography and, you know, the the uh, proximity of the uh, bases to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, you sort of have this. You know, Guadalcanal is sort of like the middle of the field, you know, it's 50 yard line. Mm-hmm. And at each of the goal lines, you've got, you know, you've got Rabul and truck at one end and you've got, the, you know, the, uh, uh, the what do you call it, the uh, the New Hebrides and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Caledon- in New Caledonia on right. the other end. And they're kind of timing themselves into the middle as they try to reinforce and hang on to this airfield or take mm-hmm. the airfield that's sitting in, in between them. Right. And so it's just sort of an interesting thing. And, and and by the way, going back to your earlier point, you were talking about European games and Pacific games and why they're so different. It's geography that's really driving the differences. I mean, if you really look at the uh, the Asian land campaigns, which mm-hmm. I look at, I look at the CBI in um, in uh, Empire of the Sun. I mm-hmm. do actually fight the war in China in Pacific War. Right. Uh, and you realize that that's a very, I mean, you do have, it feels much more like you would see in Europe. You know, you've got sure. a front line, you've got lots of guys. There was other issues going on. Uh, and it was also the Japanese were never pushed by their opponents to develop their, um, you know, their their land weapons. You know, their, their in fact, the Japanese actually had very, poor uh, infantry fighting weapons. They didn't have hardly, you know, their machine guns were heavy and very uh, low rates of fire. They were using bolt-action rifles for the most part, you know, most of their infantry. They did not have anything close to, you know, the automatic weapons that the uh, Russians and the um, and the Germans were using on the East Front. Their tanks were, uh, you know, 1930s designs with some upgrades, but they had you know, un- underpowered, lightly armored, you know, undergunned for, I mean, the gun, I mean, when the, when the Soviets come smashing into Manchuria, they make short work. I mean, these are, these are, you know, hardened boys with, you know, JS-3s and right. you know, T-3485s, and they just chew the Japanese, uh, although the army was obviously a hollow shell, it wouldn't have, I don't know that it would have mattered. Their equipment was just not up to par with what the Soviets were bringing in. And right. So the war has sort of a more um, World War One kind of feel on the mainland. And, of course, when you're fighting in the dense jungles of Burma, 
it's much more of an infantry fight. You know, you know, though they did use quite. There's a lot more armor used in CBI than people understand. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was a couple of armor brigades, and they were actually quite effective. They just obviously weren't maneuvering them up and down mountainsides and ridge back, you know, cut ridgebacks, and you know, right. they were they were more road bound when you go through the heavy terrain. But there were open plains where they could be used. But but regardless, um, the jet the British um, gained huge advantage uh, when it was when they could from their armor, where the Japanese really fundamentally had none. And they had some light tanks, and you know, early in the war when they're going against you know uh, colonial infantry that uh, have lousy uh, anti tank capability. The tanks were effective, but they were more almost a terror weapon, I think, than they were effectively as a military, you know, uh, instrument. Well, the, the but that what, what you brought up there raises the raises the point that there was other stuff going on in the Pacific theater. There were actually oh, yeah. two other th- there was the Chinese theater and the the you know CBI, and I would argue. I mean, I think that one of the things that I find sort of a, a little bit irritating when I read American uh, sort of histories of, of the Pacific War, it, it's like China never happened, right? The, well, the, yeah, they're, they're fighting in China, right? Which, which, which was sort of the, the whole, I mean, the whole political situation in the Pacific really boiled down to the fact that the Japanese were in China and the world didn't like it, and especially the Americans, right? And, the, I mean, they invaded Manchuria, and then, you know, they decided, they, they, then they invaded the whole country, and... They sort of tie themselves down. They had huge numbers of troops in, in China that they couldn't extract. So you you really have this sort of the sort of I feel like it's a it's a weight of history that's sitting in China, and but then you have games that that don't really represent that. Now it may be that there's nothing to game about it. Maybe it's just all the consequences of what happened in China that bear on the on the um, on the you know, the actual Pacific campaign, but, but I, but I, it, it's, it just seems very disconnected to me in some way. The, the histories don't talk about it. That bothers me. Uh, the games, if they don't treat it, well, maybe there's nothing to game there. What do you think? Well, I, I actually think, you know, if you've ever read the, uh, there, there's actually now starting to become, uh, a whole bunch of history books are coming out now. Uh, there's one I recently read called the forgotten ally mm-hmm. where, you start to understand the Chinese contribution to the war, which is really, as you correctly state, has been you know understated. the The issue was that if you're going to, and I really spent, and I actually have a lot of, you know, when I teach at Columbia, I have a lot of um, you know Chinese students, and I actually some of them are are interesting to talk to about their perspective, you know, on how to how to how to how do Chinese look, you know, modern Chinese people uh, population look at World War Two, and mm-hmm. you know, and and they have interesting insights into what was going on sometimes that I hadn't, you know, thought of because I, I don't come from that that culture. But right. but the long and the short of it is is that the um, you can't look at the Chinese theater unless you get very into the factions and the politics of the Kuomintang. You know, right. there's this view that uh, Chiang Kai-shek was the leader of of uh, main, you know, nationalist China, and the answer is not really. He was just sort of the largest. Um, faction with military forces and had international legitimacy, but there were a lot of other warlords. And uh, there's a really uh, interesting game uh, that came out uh, from a Taiwan company called uh, Something Sons. What is it? Uh, I don't have it here, so I can't look at it. But it's it's done by a uh, Chinese author, you know, designer. And when you look, and one of the reasons I, I've enjoyed, I've actually picked, taken that and played it a couple of times. Uh, you, 
the leaders, you know, the, the his, you know, his understanding of who's who in the zoo and who's, you know, mm-hmm. in control of what forces is far more um, advanced than what you can find in English. And it's horrible. The, the amount of books in English on the uh, war that I would, even when I did Pacific War, is uh, is not very good. I mean, it's a very yeah. scarce uh, in English. I mean, I'm obviously in Chinese right. and oh, it'd be a whole lot more. Yeah, but, but there's, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you that I tried to find some books and, and one of the best books I could find was just a series of essays by people, right? There's yeah. just nobody, yeah, you just have to kind of collect things and say, oh, well, I found this stuff about China. You know, uh, I found a book uh, when I did Pacific War. It's in the, uh, it's in the bibliography in there. Mm-hmm. It's, it was a book written by a, uh, you know, post-war, but written by a Chinese nationalist general about the war. And that's where, I mean, there were battles I had never even heard of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, engagements. And, you know, there's yep. some of the bigger ones. That they were huge. Yeah, they're you know they're huge, but more importantly, they were significant. You know the, and also it appears you know I've talked to and actually I got this from talking to uh, my Chinese students. There's a very bad understanding of the geography. You know the one of the one kid was telling me that one of the reasons that Chongqing was able to survive and the Japanese couldn't get to it is apparently the terrain is very constricted. And the river goes through this gorge, mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to get into the, that part of the interior. And so mm-hmm. the Japanese, and it was, the Japanese just couldn't get in there logistically. You know, the mm-hmm. rail lines didn't go there. If you actually look at where the Japanese went historically, it's, um, and and that's something that I, you know, I'm trying to capture in the reprint a little bit better, is they moved along the rivers, and that's why they couldn't get to Chongqing because they couldn't get upriver through this gorge apparently, and mm-hmm. to Chongqing according to. Uh, my students. And uh, you also have the, so they, they captured coastal enclaves, you know, ports, they captured all the coastal ports. Mm-hmm. They then um, penetrated into the interior along rail lines. So the, you know, the very large, uh, important cities that are on rail lines is where all the Japanese offensives go. Right. But in between the countryside, it was very sparse. And that's why you had a lot of guerrilla operations and you know, there were just huge parts mm-hmm. of the countryside. The Japanese, it's a big country, and the Japanese right. just didn't have enough troops to garrison all of it. And so, um, you know, the you know the nationals were able to hang on. But the reason it doesn't get a lot of play is because of this, um, you know, this internal political uh, thing that's going on between the communists, the different warlord factions, uh, the Kuomintang, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, and there was a, you know, if you read Forgotten Allies, there was another, uh, there was a third guy whose name is, you know, I can't pronounce his name correctly, but he was the guy who effectively came over to the Japanese side to start a government to try to create mm-hmm. peace between the Japanese and the Chinese. The Japanese never really quite understood how to get out of this war. They they could never make the right concessions to get out of the war. Mm-hmm. And so this guy fell into disfavor. But the whole point was, is it was a lot of different axes. And but the, the, the result of all that from a game design point of view, to put this back to a game, is inertia i mean that would be the way i would characterize it and so when you when you want to bring the war in if you start to bring the war in a big way and in fact uh axis empires dicenso which is a really good game i happen to love that the krieg system you know that's another Mm -hmm. you know know, uh, lineage of the european war games they tried and did a very nice game called dicenso and that game has a very, very heavy um, Chinese, you know, they start in 1931 and they have a very heavy mainland focus mm-hmm. because their game system is very much a European, you know, they're, they're porting a European uh, Krieg, you know, Panzer yeah. uh, game system onto uh, the Pacific. Sure, that'll be and, the, where it fits the best, yeah. Yeah, and, and of course in the Krieg system, 
You have the, you know, air power and naval power, you know, in the in fact, in the first one, it was just a, very much just like a support capability. Mm-hmm. You could basically uh, gain for temporarily air or naval superiority over a, a body of water or, or whatever, and then you could transport through it. And so it only looked at water as uh, could you get through or could you not get through or did mm-hmm. you have air support for this operation and you didn't have air support. And, and the units basically, you know, if I put an air unit in, you put an air unit, and they both knock each other out. So I have to have more air units. And I have to regenerate them. So it's got a really interesting system. And okay. when they ported that to the Pacific, um, they had to add a little bit more nuance. But in the end, I, it's very strategic in that, you know, you know, the Japanese carriers come out. They maybe can make a raid or you, you know, hold a body of water for a short while. You can jump onto various islands. But it's the, the naval and air power is very, um, you know, is a backseat to the land war that's mm-hmm. going on in Asia. And it's got a lot of cool things going on. So I think that that game has a much uh, more continental focus, but, uh, but, you know, another, so it succeeds very well at that level, but the, but that, but the support game system, I'm not sure captures all the nuances of the, you know, of the, uh, you know, what we would call the maritime campaign for the Pacific Mm -hmm. uh, as much, but it captures it. I mean, I, it it does a, it does a, a good job, but it, it does it, it's so it's so overbalanced with the land side that you almost, you know, it, it's sometimes hard to get your mind around how to handle it. I mean, it's it's an interesting puzzle. I like the game a lot, and I've played it several times. Hmm. Probably even play it again this summer. But it, again, there's a place where, but again, there um, they have done the, the really good job of looking at China as a bunch of series of different factions and how who controls what. And there you can see why not a lot happens. You know, you get these formed lines. It's very hard to launch an offensive, and so. When you go up to the strategic level, uh, like in Empire of the Sun, in the end, I only brought in that China was a resource sink. In other words, you have to – if you pay no attention to it, it could be a disaster. In other words, if China collapses, mm-hmm. it has a major effect on the war. If, so you have to – so if the Chinese – if the Japanese and the Empire of the Sun push in China, it's really done as a, uh, you know, a, a front track. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, in fact, that's really what I used as the basis of what I did at Churchill. You know, that was that track is this left to right, you know, moving a front thing was the idea, the genesis for what I did in, in uh, Churchill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, you know, you I steal for myself all the time. <laughs> but um, but there, if the Japanese start getting some momentum going towards actually knocking China out of the war, and if the Allies ignore it, they at their peril. So then as that's happening, the, Jap- the, the Americans have to start throwing cars, which is logistics, into China which does them no good to win the game, but it keeps them from losing the game. You know, that's really the effect of China. You've got to keep China in the war, otherwise you're going to pay a, a major penalty in the game. And so it's that um, it becomes a resource sink. It becomes a place to launch um, long-range bombers against Japan, which it was historically. And so that's really how I treat China in Empire of the Sun, whereas, of course, in Pacific War, it's, you know, it's got pieces. But I didn't uh, – when I did the game, I didn't um, – capture i i took all of that political stuff and i mm-hmm. said you know i didn't want to have i would have had a whole game onto itself mm-hmm. and all i did to simplify it was to say that if you want to do something in china it's three times more expensive logistically than anywhere else yeah which accounts for a whole lot of sins and it seemed to work out okay but again i still feel even though i had more detail in the end it doesn't have much detail right that area. Well, so what? So talk about so talk about the detail. I mean, talk about what what took when you moved from from Pacific War to Empire of the Sun. I mean, you you had you know twenty years to think about it. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, not 20, but... Uh, well, 85 to 2005, that's oh, 20 years. Yeah, I tell you, you're much better, you know, for a neurologist, you're much better at math than I am. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, 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 yes, you're right. 20 years. Yeah. So what changed? Um, well, again, I first off started out wanting to do a strategic game, not an operational game. That was the first thing. In other words... If you go to my designer notes in Empire of the Sun, I think I laid it out pretty straightforward. But the, the short story is I always wanted to fight the war, but Pacific War is not a good you – know, I, like I said, I've done it now three times. I did it twice when I was actually designing the game with my little daughter sitting on my lap. Mm-hmm. And then when I was going to do uh, in around 2002 or three, when I decided I was going to do Empire of the Sun – I said, well, let me go see, take a look at Pacific War again. It's been a while, and I, you know, at least, and I play it regularly at the campaign level. But I set the whole thing up, and I played a campaign game mm-hmm. to remember all the things that I wanted to go into Empire of the Sun and leave out of Empire of the Sun at the okay. same time. And I think one of the biggest decisions, uh, and this is where I kind of one of my biggest, you know, decisions was how to look at the conflict at a strategic level. And again, I was reading a lot of. Um, you know, doing a lot of research, and I realized that, you know, the carrier battle needed to be pushed down to what carriers did at the, you know, carriers are, and that was the whole uh, Arizona zone of influence uh, concept in the game, mm-hmm. is a carrier lets you bring that very important air umbrella anywhere you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of important uh decisions are where are the carriers and who can have them. And that was the other thing is that uh, inter-service rivalry is a, you know, a lot of people hate it uh, because it, it, you know, it creates chaos and brings, you know, uh, problems into their, into the game. But as I've pointed out over the years, all you have to do to avoid ISR and Empire of the Sun is just don't mix the Army and the Navy units. They didn't historically. And I don't make a rule saying you can't mix them. I said, you can do anything you want, but you're going to suffer when inter-service rivalry is on, if you've mixed your units up too much, you're going to have a heck of a time doing anything. Mm-hmm. And so if you just get the right mindset and just separate, you know, this is the Navy part, this is the you know, Army part, and periodically, you know, the carriers can help the Army part, mm-hmm. all of a sudden feels very historical and, uh, and things work fine and you don't have a lot of problems. And ISR just doesn't affect you because it didn't affect them except when uh, MacArthur couldn't get to the next jump without some air power. And in fact, when I think it was the, um, uh, the BIOC, um, invasion, it actually took joint chiefs of staff intervention to hmm. force the Navy to give, uh, loan their carriers to MacArthur just to do the invasion. Hmm. And they said, well, we'll hang around a little bit, but all right, you know, but they had to be ordered by the president of the United States to go do it. You know, wow. uh, you know, a lot, one, one thing a lot of people don't realize is that, uh, you know, the president of the United States, Really, you know, Article Two is the commander in chief of the military, and mm-hmm. we have civilian military. And sometimes Roosevelt literally had to, you know, Marshall and King would be fighting over something, and uh, you know, the president would say, "Look, this is what we're going to do," and they'd be like, oh, "God," and then, <laughs> but they would have to do it. I mean, he's right, the commander right. in chief, right? And so there were some interesting fights, and so I really wanted that. To me, is when you start seeing a strategic little game because the politics of of how the services fight. And the Japanese, by the way, had an equal set of problems. That was very good. It was symmetrical, mm-hmm. but it had different effects in the game. So I wanted to make sure that was in, in the game. Mm-hmm. And so by pushing down the carrier battle to a, yes, it's how I compose my invasion force, how I, how I do the operations. And then I got a hold of a, um, 
you know, the, uh, the they had seek, they had classified, um, you know, uh, strategy and, and operations manuals from that period, mm-hmm. which were all declassified. And, and it was in there that I was able to find the details about this, how they would when they would invade an island, they, they, they literally would launch an air and you know naval campaign to isolate the battlefield mm-hmm. where they wanted to go from all the other ones. And that's and that became this when they used it, they used the term actually they called smothering. So in other words, you know, using your long range bombers or your carriers to hit air bases and forces that are, you know, beyond the objective, how you freeze the enemy away so you can get in, do your thing, grab the place, and then bring your air power in, and now you've made the next jump. Okay. So that's a major part of how Empire of the Sun operates. And, of course, I get, you know, there's a whole lot of people. You know, one of the things I find interesting is a lot of people have opinions, uh, but when you actually push, you know, a little bit, you know, they read a book. And mm-hmm. they don't really understand the topic other than, you know, I read a book about carrier battles. How come it doesn't have carrier battles? It can't mm-hmm. be Pacific game. And the answer is, there's plenty of other games play those, you know. Right. But uh, but Pacific War does do does you know pay um, homage to the uh, carrier battle because at an operational level that's an important part of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, the sighting and the PBIs finding each other and you know launching your airstrike and did I launch? Can I get two airstrikes in because the time the daylight's there? Because again, I'm using a um, a time compression um, design. Uh, I don't know if anybody had done that done it that way before, but I looked at the battle. In other words. As you get closer and closer to the enemy, speed and tempo of operations picks up, you know, the cycling of what's mm-hmm. happened dramatically. Right. So so I built that into the game that when you're very far apart, you're looking you're working in like a long it's almost like acceleration, you know, in the physics. You know, as I as I go faster and faster, my mass picks up, you know. Right. I get heavier and you know, I'm going faster and then I, I slam into the other guy and I'm going and now uh, and I worked all the numbers into that mechanic. So like when a ship's moving in the contact phase, it's moving like at 12 knots. <laughs> but if you look at the time scale, it speeds up to 30 knots. And people go, well, how come I can only – it takes – I can go one day, one space, but here I can go two in a shorter period of time because you're going faster. And it, it, it's, it's the whole time scale is literally changing in the game. So this way I could get rid of the fact that for months, you know, something, nothing would happen. <laughs> you know, so there's there are periods of quiet. I didn't, And that's not very exciting. And you know, most games would just, you know, do, an, uh, you know, like a metronome, you know, game turn one, do this. And then you realize that there's all this dead space in there. I didn't want that dead space. And so I took it out, which is a trick, uh, you know, designer trick. Uh, but I managed to, you know, force this as you get to the, you know, the, the black hole in the middle, which is the battle. Everything's going faster and faster. And as you pull back, everything goes slower again. And so that seemed to work pretty well in Pacific War and to capture this operational you know, dead time, operational, high tempo operations, which you got the carry battles, and then it all sort of slows back down again. Um, so I, I feel that that was a pretty cool thing. And then I think the other thing that's absolutely critical to the Pacific War, at least, uh, I once had dinner with Ronald Lewin. He wrote um, American Magic. Uh, he was it was near the end of his life. He was already he already had like terminal cancer at that time. But he, I had dinner with him one time with through a mutual friend, phenomenal guy, and we just had the most amazing conversation around. That was when I really got my deep understanding of, you know, what was going on with the uh, decryption and, you know, the, you know, this is because remember, there weren't a lot of books out in that period of time on this topic. And so talking to Ronald Lewin, who was, and I read his uh, American Magic and Manuscript, but then we talked about it and it was just a fascinating, uh, like a two hour conversation. But my understanding of how intelligence really affected things, 
is how I created that intelligence. You know, intelligence is actually baked directly into Pacific War and direct, directly into Empire of the Sun. You know, it's not some add-on. It's like the it's at the DNA of the game, and so that whole idea. And again, again, it's another you know, it's another cheap theatrical trick where you're trying to say, okay, I know you could see my pieces, right? I'm not trying to. We're not a computer game. But yet, but can, but do you have the intelligence to react to them? You know, what is the timing and the sequencing of our forces coming together? And so that's this whole notion that everything starts out you, when you launch your forces at somebody, you're under the impression that it's a surprise attack because uh, you don't know that the enemy knows you're going there. Right now, if you go out there sort of like really dispersed, like the Japanese did in many cases, you're going to get your, you know, you could, if they react, you're going to get beat up in detail again, like the war. But if you go out saying, well, this may not go so well and you stay more compact, then even if there's an enemy reaction, you may be better able to deal with it, which is much more how the Americans often dealt with it. And also you realize that the Japanese intelligence, by the way, because of the geography, even though they they never broke our codes, Mm -hmm. their traffic intelligence and signals intelligence and their knowledge of geography and where we had to go next was they rarely um, got that wrong. You know, mm-hmm. they, they knew what was happening. I mean, they were they were you know obviously very intelligent uh, warriors, and they knew what was going on. And what's also interesting to me, which has been lost in a lot of games, is we always talk about American intelligence successes. You know, the Midway one is the you know the key to that. But it's a, but we had horrible um, ground intelligence. In fact, most every invasion, uh, with the exception maybe of one or two, uh, was an intelligence failure on our part. In other words, you would say, like, well, they thought they would take the island in three days. That's because there was about another division's worth of Japanese on the island they didn't know about. Hmm. And that was something that's not well understood by people. And I've had, you know, a lot of interesting conversations on the Internet about it. But, you know, when you actually look at the statistics, the uh, our estimates of what how many Japanese were on the islands was based on, you know, literally how much water did you know, how many wells did we see and latrines? I mean, that's the kind of things they counted, but they didn't understand how good the Japanese were at underground tunneling. And so a lot of what was on an island was just not visible from the air. So and, how do you model that? Well, what, that's how I did it. You know, what I model in, um, the way I model it in Empire of the Sun is the reaction movement. In other words, the Japanese ability, you know, after you get to a place, the Japanese ability to sw- swing a division in there um, uh, is the surprise. If, you, if they can get that division in there, all of a sudden you're dealing with a much st- steeper... Um, defense than you thought you were going to have. Mm-hmm. So again, I use an empty map design, but I use that reaction um, capability. And people say, well, are the Japanese fighting their way into the island? I go, no, they were already there. But, you know, mm-hmm. mechanically, um, this is how I did it. But the point is, is that in, in uh, Empire of the Sun, you invade an island thinking that it's empty or it only has one division. And all of a sudden you find that there's two divisions. That's right. how I capture it. And that all of a sudden turns from a, you know, I'm going to win this thing to I may lose this thing. Mm-hmm. Well, that that also becomes a little bit, um, you know, you have to as a player sort of understand what the game represents because you know a, a very literalist uh, sort of look at the at the game is impossible because of you know this idea that you can't just like you said you can't know where everybody is and 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 what I think that you know Pacific War I think did well was was the as you said the sort of uh, pretend or the the sleight of hand that said i I know you i know you can see my pieces but you can't really see them and um i was just wondering if have you ever played gary grigsby's uh war in the pacific yeah sure the uh, actually 
there was multiple cop editions right. of that. I've, yeah, I've played it. I mean, uh, but but that's but that's that's very interesting to me in, in the context of our discussion because, you know, that is a tactical game. I mean, that's the most tactical game of tactical uh, games. It, it, I mean, literally, I mean, I have the, the last edition of it that I messed around with, which was a few years ago, because uh-huh. I don't think I have a computer that'll run a current copy of it. I need an older computer. I have one. Maybe I can try it. But anyway, I, it took me a couple of days. And I don't mean like straight 20, 48 hours, but over a course of a couple of days, I remember setting up, you know, you have to go into every base and tell them, yep. are you mm-hmm. searching this way? Yep. And it's literally, I, I think there was literally companies of troops mm-hmm. individually named in each yes. of these locations. Correct. So, I mean, if anything ever was, you know, a scaling up from the man to man level up to like the war, that game mm-hmm. was there. And then once I said everything, I didn't touch it right. <laughs> other than what I was doing specifically. But, but it, it, the game could have used a little bit of, of help, like, you know, hit this button and everybody will do reasonable things, except, you know, that would have been a great, you know, you know, mm-hmm. just default. Okay, everybody, just do reasonable things while I try to figure this game out. Uh, well, kind of. there is some, there is some, some uh, element of that because I think what the what the game really does. I mean, I think that's ultimately it's it's one of the most strategic games that I've ever seen in the sense that that whole game is about building resources and supply dumps. Yeah. And th- I mean, that's really all the game is. I mean, I, I, I shouldn't say that it's not all the game is, but if you don't do that, it doesn't matter what else you do. Because yeah. you have to set the convoys to say, okay, we're going to go from San Francisco to Hawaii. And then we're going to go from Hawaii. We're going to build up all these resources. And then we're going to go into the Solomons and we're going to have to build, you know, we're going to yeah. go to, the, to, you know, New Caledonia. We're going to have to build resources there. We're going to have to build a base. We're going to have to upgrade the base. And, and so you really, you can't play that game without a real sort of overall understanding of where you need to go by 1945, because the, the whole thing is sort of you're, you're building your entire network. And if you're just saying, okay, well, I'm going to look for some Japanese carriers and try to sink them. I mean, you're, 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 you're sunk. I mean, you're, you know, so to speak, um, because you won't be able to operate in the areas that you need to operate because you won't have the resources there. And, you know, that's that's uh, so yeah, in so that I, sense, I, it's a it's a it's just really strategic Pacific War game. Yeah, I, I would argue that. That is incorrect. I, I, I mean, I don't mean you're incorrect, but I mean that I, I mean, I'm not saying that it's not. It's not a game, but around resources, which makes it has a strategic element to it. But the fact that, you know, Nimitz never figured out where a goddamn convoy went once during the war, unless it was an emergency or something like right. that. In other words, so I cheated. I had these headquarters and, and what the way that actual, you know, and I've dealt with, you know, the, the U S military, at least, at, you know, in, in the mm-hmm. real world. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they laid, if you actually deal with a land commander or even a naval commander, Mm-hmm. They lay down these lines on a map, and this is the command boundaries. You know, command boundaries is what determines who's responsible for mm-hmm. what in these theaters. And we mm-hmm. have like, you know, we have CENTCOM and and you know, and UCOM, and you know, these different commands have very specific responsibilities. And 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 where you get problems is when you try to cross those boundaries is where the problems are. Uh-huh. And that was exactly true in the war. So if you look at one of the biggest discussions that went on during the Guadalcanal campaign was that. Guadalcanal was initially in MacArthur's sphere of command. You know, his headquarters controlled that whole, you know, the whole Solomon's New Guinea area was mm-hmm. under his command. So think about the HQ and Empire of the Sun. It's got a 20 yeah. hits range and all these guys 
and that 20 hex range is the command boundary for that HQ. Mm-hmm. And then they then King goes, look, there is no way that you MacArthur's commanding my invasion of Guadalcanal. And so they had this big negotiating where they moved the boundary. And so now they had the South HQ that, you know, Gormley initially and then later um, Halsey, they had put the boundary. Now Guadalcanal was inside of the Navy's mm-hmm. boundary, which is within range of uh, Senpac or South HQ in the, in the game. And they can invade Guadalcanal uh, under Navy auspices. And then what happens is, but New, New Georgia and beyond was within, uh, you know, uh, uh, MacArthur's uh, domain again. And then they had another big fight. And so when you ask, you know, what were they fighting about? Mm-hmm. They weren't fighting about carrier battles. They were fighting about command boundaries. Now, what I'm using is I'm taking that command boundary and I'm saying that within that command boundary, <clears throat> wherever you have forces, there's a staff that's saying, look, we got to get convoys to the new, you know, if we have guys any fought in the New Hebrides, there's a convoy going there, right? If we have an air base and we've got an air unit on it, believe mm-hmm. me, the U.S. Air Force is making sure that gas and bombs are showing up to the 13th Air Force sitting on, you know, some, mm-hmm. some base and he fought. And as long as it's within the command boundary and you don't have any enemy forces, you know, in that area getting in between you and that HQ, mm-hmm. it's just going to happen. Sure. You know, and, and so, so at that level, I'm doing all the same things that Gary's doing, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm not actually trying to, you know, that I'm not doing the OCS thing where I'm, you know, I've got mm-hmm. a truck and I'm picking up this and I'm moving to there. Right. That's a different kind of game now. But because, but the, the question, which is probably an interesting philosophical one, is you actually look at the Pacific at a man-to-man level, which Gary does do, mm-hmm. and then you, you know, and then you just sum it all up. Do you get a strategic level game? And mm-hmm. I, and I don't know that that is true or not true i would say it depends but i would say that the levels of decisions being made are not strategic decisions mm-hmm. uh, other than i want to be on that base you know i got to right. be here and i have to have a base here that is a strategic decision right how this stuff gets there is not a strategic decision well, so sure, it's, sure so it's a mixture again it's that telescoping thing and so you have a lot of games that i would say at their core are they a strategic level game eschewing all of the lower stuff, which is where I was at Empire of the Sun, or the mm-hmm. Pacific War, uh, where you're an operational level game that scales up but doesn't scale down the tactical too much. I mean, you do have, like, you know, ship-to-ship engagements at the uh, surface level. You know, you do have battles uh, which are fairly tactical. Um, or are you, or are you at the Gary Grisby, or even the uh, East Wind Rain, as I said earlier, where you're actually positioning anti-aircraft batteries, but then you're scaling all the way back up to, you know, what kind of carriers am I going to build in the next production cycle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I find that to be an interesting dimension that you see a lot more of that. Well, you see a lot of that in the big war games. You know, you see that even in Third Reich or you see it in, um, you know, the all its, um, you know, the children that came out of that lineage or the Krieg, you know, through Dicenso and, uh, you know, Total Krieg, you know, and uh, Axis mm-hmm. Empires, I think, is the latest version that I've played. All great. And I happen to be a particularly big fan of that particular series, by the way. I like that. Which I, one? I like I like the original Third Reich, but I'm a very – I still play the original Krieg. I think is a brilliant design. Uh-huh. Uh, Alan Emmerich and Koz. I know was, I know when I talk to him, I call him Koz. <laughs> but, but that's a short for a longer like Kozinski or something like that okay. last name. But that's a brilliant design. I, I really do like – that's the one I like to play if I'm playing a European game. That's the one I'm going to play mm-hmm. uh, before any other. The original Krieg or Totaler Krieg? Um, you know, I, I have all three versions, and they're in different locations. So I'm going to play the one – of the, you know, like I have the Krieg is sitting in a summer house, and so when mm-hmm. I'm at that summer house, I'm going to be playing Krieg because that's the only one there. Okay. But the games are similar enough that 
Yeah. You know, I don't have any problem. You know, it, you know, there's more detail. It's the same game. You know, the core DNA is the same. And then I have to remember like a couple of special rules or some other little details. I have to say, though, that if you were to say to me, you know, if you had a choice between playing Krieg, Total or Krieg or Axis Empires, I, I, I probably would say to you I'd rather play Krieg. Okay. Only because, not because it's a better game, but it's it's like a stripped down version. You know, it's like I, I like the, um, you know, I like the stick shift version, not the automatic with the uh, the high end electronics you know, uh-huh. and yeah. the scale. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's a I think that's a function of where I mean I I I know that maybe thirty years ago in my gaming life I would have liked different things than I like now in my gaming life. So I think yeah. that there's there, there's room for all that sort of different stuff. Um, Mark, I'm going to say that this has been a fantastic conversation, and I want to continue it. Um, our uh, format is uh, an hour, and I see generally an hour because I feel that that's the uh, length that people can sort of pay attention without either breaking off or, uh, Actually, or sort of. I just no. saw a, a TED talk, and. Uh-huh. Um, it was called Flow was the name of it. You can look it up. But mm-hmm. they said that actually humans start phasing out after 10 minutes. Uh, okay. Well, you might have a, as a neurologist, you may have a yeah, view on that. But yeah. I, but as I teach now, I, I take that into account. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I think that uh, our, our audience is, is, is well able to, to uh, follow for an hour. <laughs> but I think we're going to – I want to have some more talk. I think we should, uh, we should talk uh, – I think we should revisit this uh, subject. And we sure. should also talk about um, – talk about some other games and uh, also maybe talk about how the how the european work because i think i i'm very interested in, in your thoughts about how how you take decisions uh sort of military decisions and and uh and scale them up or down to make an interesting narrative because i think the interesting narrative part is is the real important thing and and you know as we were talking about gary grigsby's game i think that there you know it's a different imaginative space that you go into right i mean some people really really want to you know build the base and and see all the companies and and that's fine right i mean you have you you that's that's what they engage with so i think that every designer sort of makes the game that he's ultimately going to engage with um otherwise you wouldn't make it um but what what decisions go into that are, are pretty well, uh, If you remember my complex. article, I wrote an article in, uh, you know, Roger McGowan's C3I magazine, and I called it, you know, Sam I Am. And I, again, I like telescoping design. I mean, if you look at that article, I think you may, you may have seen it. But the main point was, is for me personally, I like knowing in a game who I am. And so, like, when I did Churchill, I know, like, I'm Stalin, you know, and not, not that that's a good thing, but, <laughs> right. first of all, but, you know, I know exactly who I am, and I can really, the, the story arc is stronger to me the more I can identify with, a, a, you know, the a human that, that I'm, that I'm, you know, that I'm, like, representing in the game. Now, I may have, obviously, I'm going I'm to have a staff, and I'm going to have some abstraction around that, but that fundamentally, I, I I know who I am. Mm-hmm. So in Pacific War, you're clearly, um, you know, you're an operational level command, you know, taking Guadalcanal in Empire of the Sun. You're a headquarters running a whole sector of the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like that kind of game. And that's not saying I don't like other kind of game. But for me, it's really this debate between macroeconomics and microeconomics. You know, mm-hmm. there are people who love microeconomics and, you know, they want to push around uh, okay. bullets and beans. And I do like doing that on occasion. Mm-hmm. But but then I would do a game about logistics and, you know, and what it's like to be the staff maybe. But when I want to be, you know, a, a great warrior in, 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 in military history, I, I want to be clear who I am and that I don't want to deal with stuff that they didn't deal with. And again, mm-hmm. that's why I read a lot of memoirs, because 
you know, you understand what they were thinking about and what they were deciding about is really the storyline. And that's how I kind of pick it up. Great. Well, we will pick it up again. But for now, I'm going to say thank you very much for a fascinating okay. discussion. And uh, I will say good night to our audience or good morning or afternoon. Have a great day, Bruce. Thank you. You too.